Hi, Paul Scanlon here. Thanks for taking the time to click on my podcast. I want to spend time focusing on my primary passions of leadership, personal development, communication, growing big people, and I hope that these podcasts really help and add value to your life and to your journey. Thanks for tuning in. I am going to read to you tonight uh, quite, quite a long reading, but I think it's I think it's just a great piece of scripture to read. One of my favorites, it's a very man uh, passage, I suppose. Depends if the girls are into uh, action movies or not. Um, if you are, you'll enjoy this too. Um, I'm going to read from 2 Samuel 23, verse 8. Uh, probably going to come on screen in a moment, I don't know. But let me just start reading and I'll pause and make a couple of comments and, uh, and then... We'll come to the major point I want to make tonight. These are the names of David's mighty men. Josheb Bashibeth. There, there's an action hero name. Josheb Bashibeth. A Tachimanite. He was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Wow. I don't know what we do when we read that stuff in the Bible. I don't know whether we think it's kind of poetic or it's kind of, um, you know, an allegory of something that actually did happen that wasn't quite like that. I don't know what we think, but, but if you were to read that in any modern publication, you'd be like, you have got to be kidding me. Especially when you realize this guy didn't do that with a machine gun or a bomb. <laughs> but he did it with whatever he had in his hand a sword, a spear, a club, his head. <laughs> I saw a Gurkha awarded with a special bravery award on our TV last year, one of our armed forces Gurkhas, and he was awarded this medal for bravery, a very unusual, rare, difficult to get medal. Because he fought off three Taliban. This guy is fighting off 800 on his own. I think it's obvious when you read that dynamic. I wasn't there. I don't know. But you would think, wouldn't you? That, that after the first dozen, 15, 20, drop dead in, in combat with Josheb Bashibeth, you think the rest would think, you know what? We need to go home and rethink this. My point being, I'm, I'm not sure that they kept coming for him after the first dozen. I think he started going after them. This guy, he's only number one. I'm going to read the rest of them to you. This guy, Joshua Basibeth, was the chief amongst the three. This guy was a piece of work. Next to him was Eliezer, as one of the three mighty men. He was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pasdamim. All the men of Israel retreated, but Eliezer stood his ground and killed the Philistines till his hand grew tired and stuck to the sword. That day the Lord brought about a great victory. The troops who ran away returned to Eliezer, but only to strip the dead. Next to Eliezer was Shammah. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah 
took his stand in the middle of the lentil field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down and the Lord brought about a great victory. During harvest time, three of the thirty chief men came down to David at the cave of Adullam while a band of Philistines was camped nearby. At the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried the water back to David, but he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, O Lord, to do this. It is, not, is, is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their own lives, and David would not drink it? Abishai, Joab's brother, killed 300 men with his spear. He became as famous as the three. Benai was a valiant fighter who performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. Check this out. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. Any of you ever been near a lion? I don't mean at the zoo now. I mean on a safari or something. You ever been near a lion? Even been near a lion sleeping. You are nervous. Of your awareness of the potential of that beast. <laughs> this guy is taking on a lion in a pit on a snowy day. So it's snowing, maybe he was running from the lion, the lion finished up in a pit that it didn't know was there, instead of doing what a normal person would do, running away, thanking God he was saved from the lion, he goes back, jumps down into the pit, so an enclosed confined space, snowy day, slippery, you have two legs, it's got four. It's more stable than you. It's built to kill. It is, it is many more times powerful than you. This guy jumped down into the pit on a snowy day and saw that there are, there are six footprints going in, six footprints all mushed up on the floor of the pit, and then two footprints coming out. <laughs> of Benai with some trophy perhaps from his kill. This guy was a piece of work and he wasn't even the chief of these guys. He's just like one of the dudes that David hung out with and had in his close team, his close men that were around him. He killed a huge Egyptian, although the Egyptian had a spear. Benai went against him only with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian and killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benai. He was as famous as the three mighty men. He was held in greater honor than any of the thirty, but he was not, he was not included amongst the three. David put him, Benai, the lion in the snowy pit guy, in charge of his personal bodyguard. Well, you would, wouldn't you? <laughs> David had some amazing leaders around him. Helpers, supporters, fighters, 
layers of their lives down for him, even if it was just a drink that he wanted from his favorite well in Jerusalem. Men who would take on hundreds to one. Men who would stand alone against all sensible odds. Men who risked their life for nothing more than a patch of lentils. What is, was it worth losing your life for? What it was to them because the lentils belonged to Israel. That seemed to be the whole issue for this guy that stood and risked his life. When the rest ran away, his own troops, his own army ran and he stood and risked his life for a lentil patch. Men who risked their life to kill giants. Men who killed lions in a snowy pit. David had some amazing people around him. And the point I want to make to you tonight is that there is no I in team, but there's five in individual brilliance. Yes, count them. Count them. There's five in individual brilliance. I want to talk about this a little bit with you in the time that we have because um, I think that when we, and I have, I have been in too many teams and I have built too many teams to not recall many occasions when the difference that was made on that day was not down to the team. It was down to an individual's brilliance, an individual's stickability, an individual's take on something, an individual's wisdom on something. Our difficulty in, I think, the church often is that we're so afraid of someone having an ego trip or becoming a prima donna. And believe me, I have had more than my fair share of those over the last 30 years that have kind of come and gone in the life of our church. I don't think it's just unique to the church. I think it's, it's everywhere. I think if you have an ego uh, and you're a prima donna, you'll be that kind of wherever you are, I suppose. You, you see them on Britain's Got Talent when they come on stage. You think straight away, you're a diva and you won't last five seconds. And we get it in the church. We get it in all walks of life. But I think in the church, when we experience that, the damage it has in us, the, 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 the effect it has on us is that we never, ever want to have another one. And if you've had one, you never want to have another one. Because managing that ego and managing prima donnas is just, it, it is a hiding to nothing. It's a, it's a, it's a lose-lose scenario. And, and watching that over the years and watching how that affects us, I think what we do is we, we want to teach team as if everyone on the team is the same and equal and everybody has the same contribution and it's just not true. It's not true in life, it's not true in sport, it's not true in any organization. And I want tonight us to celebrate the, the blessing, the benefit, the joy, the wisdom of team because that's how we've built what we've built and that's how we are building what we are building. But I also want to lift out from David's mighty men and many other examples we could touch on that amongst every team are people that have a skill set, a wisdom, a gifting, an ability that they got from God that if the team can have a large enough heart and be secure enough 
to allow them to be who God made them to be without being threatened, then I believe that we are into a win-win scenario in all of our churches. Because listen to me, what some of you need in your churches isn't there yet. And what some of you need will never come until you stop being insecure and threatened by people that may just have a gift and an ability and a contribution and a way of doing a thing that really is different and maybe smarter and maybe better and maybe more effective and more impactful than anything you are bringing. David had seasons in his life, as you know, he spent he spent years in that cave of Adullam, and we know that he's on his way to his kingship. He's already been anointed, but Saul's still on the throne. And David is holed up like a fugitive, which he was from Saul in the cave. And the Bible says those that were in, in debt or distressed or discontented, that was the people that made up his church. It was the 3D church. It's not a great caliber of people to to take the throne in Jerusalem with. And I think David knew that. I taught a message years ago. It's probably in that landmark series that, that, that may be out there. Realizing this back then. That our church had become like a cave of a Dullam church. That we were reaching the poor and the down and outs. And that became, a, that became almost a majority of the kind of people in our church. And, and it was good for us because we weren't reaching those people and then we began to reach them. And many of the, many of the kind of middle class people, I think, were threatened and insecure by coming to church and not knowing if their stuff would get stolen or not or their cow would still be there when they got outside. And I understood all that. And we walked through all of that, as many of you know our story. But what I realized was that if we just have... A church filled with people that are in distress, debt or discontent, there's not a lot you can do with them. Apart from continuing to service those needs that they came to you to service. And David clearly was an attractive leader and he had something to give them. And they were moving from Saul towards him, but they were not great raw material for what his destiny was. And then he moves through different stages. And the next stage was he went to Hebron, to Mount Hebron. And the Bible tells us that at Mount Hebron, something like 300,000 people joined him. And when you read the list of the kind of caliber of people they were, they were not people who would have ever joined him in the cave of Adullam. These people were not coming for a need that they had for him to meet. They were coming to put David on the throne. They were coming with gifts and abilities and wisdom and anointing and some of them were highly skilled and some of them were highly dangerous and they were coming to support David's kingship and to put him on the throne. My point is that Hebron people will not join an Adullam church was the title of that message back then and that concept really is, is generic in this teaching that I'm giving you tonight. You know the acrostic for team, together everyone achieves more. I believe that. But I also believe that the more is often down to an individual's brilliance on that team. It wasn't all the team that, that made the difference that day. There was no team when Eliezer stood on his own. Where was the team? He shouldn't be taking on 800 by himself. It says that the rest of the soldiers fled and only came back to pick the stuff off the dead he'd killed. So all the team get blessed, all the team benefit, but you couldn't say it was a team effort that won the day that day. There was no team when Shammah stood alone in the lentil patch. Again, 
His colleagues had fled and he stood his ground and won the day. There was no team when David killed Goliath. No team. He was really, really on his own. There was no team when Joshua and Caleb stood alone and said, we can take this land. God is with us. There was no team. All the team abandoned them, gave a negative report. But their individual brilliance won the day and caused them to live another generation and outlive the generation that didn't want to have a goal. And they were the only two remaining that went into the promised land 40 plus years later because the Bible says they were of a different spirit. There was no team when Joseph was in jail and Joseph was sold into slavery. And yet in that adverse situation, his own individual brilliance, his own giftedness with people, his own inner strength and fortitude is what enabled him to sustain that persecution, sustain that wrongful arrest and wrongful accusation and come to be the second in command in the most powerful nation in the world. There was no team on the cross. All the team left him. Even those that said, I'll never leave you or forsake you, left him. You know, Saul and David could have been a great team together. But on the day that David killed Goliath and did something Saul couldn't do and none of the team wanted to do, none of the warriors would step up and, and have a go. And as they're returning that day to Jerusalem, we read that the women sang... Saul has slain his thousands, which sounds fantastic till you hear the second line of the song. But David has slain his tens of thousands. And the individual brilliance of David was a threat to Saul. But when you look at that, you think, well, hang on a minute. If, if Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands, that's 11,000 between them. That's a win-win. means that we can get more than 1,000. We can get 11,000 killed if we can add David's strength to the mix and the, to the team. But he couldn't do that. He wouldn't do that. Let's put up on screen my picture of individually brilliant people. Recognize any of these? Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Messi. He scored just five or six goals in a single game. When you watch him with the ball, on the ball, he's, he's in a team. But don't tell me on that day it was the team that put six goals in the back of the net. And there's people, you know, footballers' names that I would date myself to tell you about that you wouldn't recognize like George Best, you know, in my day. There were the messes of his day. David Beckham, Ronaldo. Here's our lion killer up here. Michael Schumacher, Michael Jordan. It was said of Michael Jordan that he was the only one that wanted the ball when the pressure was on. And they were in the final dying moments of a game. He wanted the ball. No one wanted the ball in case they fumbled it when they got it. He wanted the ball. His individual brilliance won more games for Chicago Bulls than most people probably want to talk about or celebrate. Michael Jackson. And Paul McCartney are up there because though they were part of a group and inside a band, they clearly had an individual brilliance that gave them a life and a career beyond the group and beyond the band. Yeah. 
The others that were in the group didn't go on to do what these guys did because they were so dependent on a team context to get out what was in them. But there are some people that don't need a team context to get out what's in them. They have a sufficient individual brilliance to thrive with or without the team. What we want in our building of church and our building of teams is that I think we want to build teams where, where we celebrate the difference and the variety of gifts within the team without feeling that we can't celebrate you when God uses you in a way that is clearly outstanding and unique and different and special to others in the team. I think we've historically been so bothered about, about saying that and recognizing that I meet leaders around the world in all expressions of church life, I suppose, a lot of musicians. Um, I don't think they chose to have an individual career. I think what happened to many of these guys is that they felt that the team that they were part of was threatened by their gift and their ability. And so they just thought for a quiet life, I'm probably better going on the road doing my own thing and still blessing the church and serving God. But I couldn't, I couldn't do that in the local church I was in because the team was threatened by me, the pastor was threatened by me. And so they went on the road and, and did their own thing, but it was never, you know, plan A as it were. Rather than being able to sense and to see, and, and, and I've, I've been around too many individually gifted people to not talk to you about this, to not, to not ask you to think about this, because some of the people you need are a dullum kind of people. They're these kind of people. They're these kind of people. And they will come with a gift and with a wisdom. They'll start at a level that the cave of a dullum people don't. And they'll come with ideas and they'll come with resources and they'll come with a giftedness and with a strength that you need to get done what you need to get done. The individual brilliance in some of these young people here tonight. You're already in the beginnings of, of, of discovery of your gift and of your ability of how brilliant God has made some of you. And we want you to know and I think we need to say to our young people in the church, we don't want you to hide your light. We don't want you to shrink back so that we feel more secure around you. We don't want you to pretend you're not as brilliant as you are when you see a 12-year-old on an instrument playing with such accomplishment and such confidence or you see a teenager with a microphone. And by the way, this is not just about the stage. I don't think Benai, the guy that tackled the lion in the pit on the snowy day, I don't think his gift was lion killing. That's just what he did. Yeah. I think his gift to David and his gift to the team, uh, which, which is very unusual, I have to say, in my experience uh, in people, in meeting people around the world and doing team. But I think, I think Benaiah's gift was, was he had a level of fearlessness that was very, very unusual. When you get fearless people around you, it's very scary. If you're threatened by it. When you get fearless people around you, they're very special. I don't mean, I don't mean reckless. I don't mean stupid. Although one man's reckless is another man's easy. So that's all relative. 
But for a man to jump down into a pit on a snowy day and confront a lion, he's either absolutely nuts or he knows something you don't. What he might know that we don't is that every single human being is born with two fears. And yet, to date, I understand by looking at this, there are 2,000 recognized, named fears and phobias in the world today, including a fear of fear. <laughs> 2,000. So, 1,998 fears are learned. Because you were born with two. The two you're born with are the fear of falling and the fear of loud noises. The rest are learned, including the fear of lions, clearly. The fear of lions is learned. It's not a bad thing to learn. But Benai and fearless people understand this. If you can learn it, you can unlearn it. So for a man to tackle a lion in a pit on a snowy day and kill that lion or not know the outcome but attempt it anyway, he has a level of fearlessness that I think David recognized because I believe it was in David himself. Because David also tackled a lion and a bear and Goliath. And when David is well past his sell-by date on being able to tackle giants, David is still tangling it and messing it up with giants. He's still on the battlefield. And we get one episode where David goes to take on a giant, one of these giant Egyptians, and the guy was getting the better of David. Because by this time, he's probably in his 60s. He's not as agile, not as strong as he was, not as aware as he was when he was a young teenager. So this guy's getting the better of him. So his mighty men stepped in and took out the giant because David didn't know when to quit. He had this fearlessness. It was said by the enemies of Israel that if David amongst them, he fights like a bear. So if David's amongst them, we better make sure we've got the resources to beat them. Such was his reputation. I believe David attracted after his own kind. Fearlessness was his contribution to the team. God did not give us a spirit of fear. But a spirit of love and of power and of a sound mind. God, if you have a spirit of fear, where did you learn that? Which school did you go to? Where did you graduate and, and get that certificate from? Because if you can learn it, you can unlearn it. And there, as Charlotte said earlier today, there are so many fears. Some of them we don't even have names for. But that fear is stopping you progressing to your future. And what you maybe need is maybe you need a Benai to enter your world that doesn't share your fear and doesn't share your conviction or your understanding or your belief about that particular thing, you will either be threatened by them and get them away from you as unreasonable, unsafe, scary people that are not open to the reasoning that I have reasoned with my fear for years. Or you realize that an absolute gift from God and they will say to you, why not? They will say to you, yes, we can. They will say to you, we're more than capable, as Joshua and Caleb did. You need those people in your world. But if you surround yourself with small people, who are all about, you know, we're all team, we're all team, we're all team out, we're all the same, we're all equal. We don't know those big, bad, nasty, fearless people amongst us. You'll stay small. And if you'll get a few of those 
a few of those mighty men around you, you'll find more will come. Because like, like, like attracts like. I remember um, some years ago, quite a while ago now, some of our team will remember this. Uh, we were, I think, a week from doing a, an album. You know, we were doing live albums back then, and we were doing a live album, and our drummer uh, canceled with, I think, about a week to go. And Steve Gamble, um, that wasn't drumming at that time, he brought other drummers through and was in retirement. And the new songs that we were putting on the album, he had not drummed on and not been part of all of that because he wasn't involved in the band at that time. He was youth pastoring. But so he was the next nearest thing to ask him to step in. And within a week, Steve stepped in, learned those songs and drummed on the album. And I defy anybody to know that he didn't know the songs months and months in advance. Individual brilliance. Individual brilliance. Mark Stevens has, I think, an individual brilliance that I love. It's amongst our team. And it's not a threat to anyone else. And it's celebrated and loved. Everybody has a gift. Everybody has a contribution. But some people bring something. And you think, wow, that's awesome. And they, to me, it's like an orchestra. It's like conducting a symphony orchestra. And in the score and in the arrangement is a moment where everyone stops playing and the baton of the conductor goes in the direction of the one who is now scored and arranged to have a solo moment. And that instrument is drawn forward for a few moments in that piece of music and it is a brilliant piece of individual musicianship and then they blend back into the orchestra and carry on playing as part of the symphony but their ability to step forward and to play and then to blend back in, to step forward and to play, it's that that we need in our teams that people will at times when we need it step forward with what God gave them rather than feel, well, if I open my mouth if I say what I really think, if I say we can do this, if I step up and if I, I'm going to be, you know, gonna, what do you think he is and I'm going to get those odd looks and those, and I've, I've had that myself in many contexts coming through in my walk with God and you finish up, you finish up deciding where we'll have to just blend in and be, you know, just be part of that whole beige thing. We're all just team. Oh, we get, we get serious about this. We think about it. We, we decide that this can be as much a part of what we build as anything we've ever called team. There's no I in team. But there's flipping five in individual brilliance. And we need it. We need it in the church. I don't want people to leave the church saying, well, I had to go on the road and do my own ministry because the church was too threatened by me. I hate that. And, and I've said earlier, about the prima donna stuff, I don't mean those people. I mean people that, that, that struggled and suffered with this dynamic. Let's appreciate what each person brings to our team. Let's celebrate difference amongst us and recognize that we are all different and we all bring different skills. I remember when I was, um, uh, I, I, had a, uh, I had a secretary, PA, and uh, she was quite old and... Um, uh, and it was difficult to get some things done and difficult to get things across. And I remember, I remember saying one day when I was watching Star Trek, 
That's an admission for you right there. Some leaders tell you they get depressed, others tell you they watch Star Trek. It's all insight to our world. And I remember watching Captain Kirk with his starship Enterprise. And I remember him sitting in his chair and saying to Mr. Spock, um, you know, what factor, whatever, make it so. And Mr. Spock would make it so. And I felt I'm like Captain Kirk without a Spock. I know what I want to go. I know how fast I'd like to get there. But I have no one to turn to and say, make it so. Because the lady that served me at that time really was struggling to keep up. And, I, and what happened to me, I realized, was that I'd stopped having ideas because I realized I had no one to make it happen. So what happens is you start to reduce to that level of the person that's next to you because you think, well, I couldn't mention this to her. She'd have a heart attack. So what happens is you start to pile up all these frustrations of dreams and ideas because you know there's no one, and some of you are there right now, there's no one that you can give it to. You have no shama, no benai to say, I want you to make this happen. I want you to go and do this. I want you to inquire. I want you to make a call. I want you to get on the same page. But there's no one you have to say that to. So you're frustrated. You hold it. You come to a conference like this or somewhere else and you think, wow, I wish I loved that. And your problem is you have no one to turn to and say, make it so. But it's not that they don't exist. Maybe it's that you have not yet come to a place of largeness of heart and security in your own life and ministry to know, God, you can send me those people. I'm okay. And I'll tell you something. They're probably already there. It's probably a miracle in your house. Someone needs to look at differently to how you've looked at them before that has a gift and a potential that's latent, but it's no need to express itself while you're still looking to the people that are threatened and are smaller in capacity. And at that time, I gave, I asked Charlotte to come on staff, and Charlotte came on staff. And on day one, I just felt this whole load had come off in my back. You know, Charlotte was my secretary in PA for a number of years. Some of you know that. And I would say to her, Charlotte, I've got an idea, something I want to do. And she would say to me, tell me what it is, and I will make it happen. And that's exactly what she did. And for years, we had this, I have an idea, you make it happen. I have an idea, you make it happen. And I know that we had a team, and Charlotte had a team, and was part of a team, and I was part of a team. But I know that her own individual brilliance allowed me to do some things, and dream some things, and, and suggest some things, that others would have passed out around the table. You need these people in your world. You need them in your teams in the church. You need them around the table with you when you're dreaming and when you're thinking big. You pastors and leaders, you need, you need the fearless ones. You need the smart ones. You need the ones that get it. You need the ones that just, sometimes their gift isn't like platform things. Sometimes it's just that they get it. Yeah. It's that, yeah, I get it. And, and you're still talking long after they get it. And they're like, dude, I get it. I get it. In fact, you be quiet. I'll tell you what I think you're saying. And sometimes you think, wow, you get it better than I get it. Those people are priceless. They're individually brilliant. You think, wow, I know you're in the team, but I couldn't have done it without you. Even the Bible says, first, apostles. Second, prophets. Third, pastors and teachers. And then, not four, five, six, and then, workers of miracles. Those are gifts of healing. It's not, it's not a hierarchy. It's talking, about, it's talking about what we need first before we start with the second. You don't start building a house with a decorator. You don't phone the plumber and say, hey, I'd like to build a new house. He said, let me know when you've spoke to the architect and the architect spoke to the contractor and I'll probably be involved about four months down the line. Don't speak to me first. But in the church, we're constantly using the first person wrongly. 
We're going to the people that only come in later. And that's what Jesus said. You'll chase miracles, signs and wonders, but you won't do anything to lift a burden off people that are struggling under injustice. And we've got to build differently. We've got to look for these people that are our first. Some of you are at a stage. You're at a transition point. You need to get into the next level of where you're going. And the people that you need are either not there yet because you're not giving off that signal. You can only attract what you become. Or they're already there, but you're overlooking them because they're not currently part of your leadership team. They don't have a title or a badge or a position or a longevity or even a maturity that makes you feel you can look to them. And I want you to go with new eyes. We prayed this morning about our eyesight, about God taking away our cataracts and God erasing our short-sightedness and God helping us to see and take off the peripheral vision blinkers and see that around you and amongst you are maybe people that were always there, but you can't see for looking because you're looking for the wrong people. And I think if you'll add this to the mix of what's coming next in your future, I think you'll be surprised how you will see differently of what you've always been looking at but couldn't see. <laughs> you know, the great thing about having individually brilliant people is that God uses them beyond your church. So you get relief when they go away. You do. It's awesome. You miss them when they're away. You're glad when they're back. But you realize that this is where they call home and they'll always call it home. If home celebrates them, is not threatened by them. I know guys around the world that are still connected to the same church they've been in for all their life. But, but, but they're now ministering way beyond that setting, but they still call that place home. And, and still love that and still minister there. And all around the world, I think that movement of people has been unhelpful sometimes because of that story that I'm describing now. But when they go away and minister around the world, because these individual brilliant people, these people, they have a gift way beyond the group that they're part of. And it's the same in God's house. We understand it in the business world, the sports world. Why don't we understand it in the church? Others benefit from that brilliance that God gave them. Other houses get to grow. Other people are blessed. Others receive that wisdom. It's not just for us. We can't keep it to ourselves. We need to share it. And that's another reason we get threatened. When people are used beyond, we must get threatened. It's, it's a gift God gave to the world. Let's put my words up again. So the side here, we'll put it in the middle. Look at that. Write it down. Think about it. I've talked to a number of you this week and, and over the years as we've traveled amongst you and been amongst your churches and had these discussions about we're stuck and where do we go next and how do we get this happening and the frustration. I understand that. I've been there. And this isn't the only answer but it's part of maybe what's missing in the relational thinking that you have about how to build and how to get the next level. Well, thanks again for listening to today's podcast. I hope you found it beneficial. And uh, I know time is precious commodity for us all, but I would love it if you would take the time to write a review or comment and above all, maybe subscribe to my podcast channel. Thank you.